Good morning and welcome to everyone. Uh, I wait to see my face on that screen so that I can say good morning and welcome to everyone joining us at, uh, at Crossroads Highland Park upstairs at the 01. Happy Easter and by the way, special thanks to, uh, to John, to Paula, and to Stephen for sharing their stories about sort of intersecting with God and, and moving forward. We all have stories Hopefully your story intersects with God and and moves forward as theirs has. So I have uh, here a copy of the Jerusalem Post. And uh, it's a paper, comes out of Jerusalem, and I've read it a few times. And uh, about three months ago, one of the editors of the Jerusalem Post was in Chicago and speaking. He grew up in Chicago, did his master's degree in journalism in Northwestern, and then it moved to Israel, and he'd become an editor at this paper, and he was back visiting family, and so he gave this lecture called uh, Understanding the Middle East. And um, since I don't pretend to understand the Middle East, I went to the lecture, and I now don't understand the Middle East at a far more complicated level than I didn't understand it before. But because I met the editor, I'm a little bit more intrigued by the magazine, by the newspaper. But I don't have it today because of that. I have it today because this Jerusalem newspaper did not start publishing until the 1930s. However, in spite of the fact that there wasn't a newspaper in Jerusalem in the 1930s, and in spite of the fact that uh, not that many people were actually bothering to write anything down back then, in part because in order to write something down, you had to make your own paper and uh, make your own ink, and uh, that was a hassle. And in spite of the fact that there was no newspaper and not many people were writing things down because of the hassle of writing them down on paper and that you made with ink that you had come up with, in spite of the fact that the paper that they made and the ink that they used didn't last, right? I mean, how long would paper that you made last? And in spite of the fact that those who did go to all the trouble of writing something down, did make the paper, and did write something down, generally were not writing about obscure first century rabbis from Nazareth. They were writing about kings and battles and things like that. In spite of all those things, we have enough information from non-Christian first century sources, things that were written down, to establish that there was a man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah and had some kind of powers that tended to draw big crowds. And we have enough information from non-Christian first century sources to say that not only did Jesus claim to be the Messiah, he claimed to be God. And this was a problem because claiming to be God is blasphemy and that was a capital offense, but the Jewish authorities that would put Jesus to death didn't have that power because the Jews were living under subjection of Roman rule. And the Romans were not interested in putting somebody to death for what they considered to be a minor, trivial religious issue. But we know from non-Christian first century sources that at some point one of Christ's own followers betrayed him and turned him into the Jewish religious authorities who turned him into the Roman leadership. In particular, a man named Pilate, who was the governor of uh, the area. And, and they charged Jesus with insurrection, with treason against Caesar. He claimed to be king. 
And uh, Pilate was not particularly taken by their arguments, but, but because of the pressure, because <clears throat> everybody was there in Jerusalem at the time, it was a very kinetic moment because it was Passover, it's sort of their 4th of July, all these people were patriots that come into town. And, and because it's sort of a powder keg, Pilate is persuaded he needs to take Jesus out. And so he orders Jesus to be whipped and then crucified. And we know, again, from our non-Christian first century sources that uh, Jesus was crucified. And then he was buried according to Jewish custom. And he was placed in a solid rock tomb and a stone was rolled in front of the, uh, the door. And because there was fear that the disciples would come and steal the body... They, uh, they went to the, to the level of, of having a Roman guard unit posted at the door. However, when some women went back a couple days later in order to further attend to and treat the body of Jesus, they discovered that the stone was rolled away, the Roman guard unit was gone, and that there was no body. And then <clears throat> shortly after that, they claimed to see Jesus alive and eventually 500 people uh, in time would claim to see Jesus alive. And from that claim, an empty tomb and those people claiming they saw Jesus alive, the Christian faith started and it began to spread. And we know from these first century sources that it spread uh, like a brush fire throughout the Roman uh, Empire over these first few years. Now, uh, we have to leave first century sources at that point because we leave the first century, but we know that the church continues to grow uh, down through the next 2,000 years. It's, it's growing not so much in the West anymore, but it's growing like a, a weed in Africa, Asia, Latin America. The church, there will be hundreds of millions, billions of people in Easter services. There will be more people, more Christians in China worshiping today than there are in the United States. The church is growing rapidly. And... Uh, all the way up to you being here today. So it all starts with this empty tomb. And the question is, how did the tomb get empty? Like what happened that, that set in motion the things that eventually leaded, led to you being here today? What happened? Well, there are a few theories out there uh, and have been the same few theories over the last 2,000 years. Some uh, claim that the disciples stole the body. Some claim that Jesus didn't die on the cross. He just sort of passed out and then he swooned later on. He was able to push the stone away, frighten the guards, and persuade everyone that he'd risen from the dead. Some claim that the women went to the wrong tomb and that nobody at any point ever went back to the right tomb. And then there's a theory that says that Jesus uh, rose from the dead. And I'm sort of in the last camp, which is not that surprising because here I am speaking. But for the record, uh, I don't believe it because I knew I would be speaking, right? I, I mean, I, I, I am a pastor in part because I believe this. And I am persuaded that it's true. And I would argue that I believe it on the basis of evidence. That uh, if we learn to sort of step outside of a very uh, rationalistic, uh, harsh 21st century scientific mindset and look at this in a broader sense, the evidence becomes overwhelming. And uh, so uh, I say, look... Um, I think the other theories collapse as soon as you push on them. 
Furthermore, let's acknowledge that we're not talking about anybody rising from the dead. We're talking about Jesus rising from the dead. And he actually said he was going to rise from the dead. <laughs> All right. He claimed to be God. And he said, I'm going to Jerusalem to lay down my life. This is the plan. And then I will rise again on the third day. No one was taking him seriously, but these are the things that he said before it all happened. And, and this idea that he would rise again uh, on the third day, he said it in a way that didn't make sense to them the first time they heard it. For instance, he, he said it in numerous ways, but one of them was when he was standing on the temple steps, having a little uh, back and forth tiff with the uh, religious leaders, he said, look, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. Now, the temple steps that he was standing on was the, was the temple that Herod the Great was rebuilding. And Herod the Great was called Herod the Great because he was a great builder. And he had had already, about, for, at the time that Jesus was standing there, the temple wasn't done yet, but he had had 10,000 people working for 40 years on this temple. And there would be another, uh, there'd be another 20 years before they're done with the temple. And so it's this massive structure and Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll rebuild it. And they're like, what are you talking about? How, first of all, who would want to destroy the temple? It is, it is, the, it is the place where God resides. Like, this is where God comes to intersect the earth. Who would ever want to destroy the temple? And who could possibly rebuild it in three days? But of course, he was talking about himself, because he's making the claim to be the new temple. He says, I'm, I'm the place where God and man intersect now. I'm the place you come to to get your sins forgiven. I'm the new temple. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. Right? So Jesus makes these claims that he's going to rise again. Furthermore, it's not simply that the tomb was empty. And it wasn't empty. The grave clothes were in there. But it's not simply that Jesus' body wasn't there. It's that all these people saw him. And, and, and the, the New Testament doesn't read like fantasy. It's not a long time ago in a faraway land. It's all sort of historically grounded. And they, they give specific times and places, and, and they date this thing, and, and they give the location. And, and when it comes to the resurrection, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Look, I saw him after he had been crucified, and there's 500 other people you can go talk to. Go talk to them if you don't want to believe me. And then we have the changed lives of the disciples. Uh, in the first, throughout the Gospels, they, they, they come across as sort of, you know, ne'er-do-wells. They're the keystone cops. They never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're sort of a joke. And then uh, after the resurrection, there are these leaders that no one can shut up. And they launch this movement that continues to spread. Chuck Colson of Watergate fame said that uh, the changed lives of the disciples, because they will all die for this story. He said, the changed lives of the disciples persuaded me that Jesus rose from the dead. He goes, because when I was trying to hold together a conspiracy, right, uh, with the most educated, powerful people on the planet, he goes, we couldn't keep our story straight for three hours. And he said, they never wavered from their story. So the changed lives of the disciples. And then... The, the final reason I think it's so significant that, to say it, it's about Christ is because <laughs> we're not, well, you, no offense, but we're not talking about you rising from the dead. And we're not talking about me rising from the dead. Right? We're talking about the most significant person who's ever lived rising from the dead. 
There's been 60 billion people on this planet. I didn't count, but I read it in a book. 60 billion people have lived on the planet. And I think you can make a pretty strong case that Jesus is the most significant person who's ever lived. Right? He's inspired more music and more art. He is, he is the one that launched more hospitals and orphanages and education centers and, and, and care shelters for, for battered women. I mean, you look at the, the, the hundreds of millions of people who are every day trying to figure out, what would Jesus do? Like, how do I live a better life? Because he's the example. He gives us the greatest ethical system that we have. I think it's easy to argue that Jesus is the most influential person who ever lived. He claimed to be God. And he said he would come back from the dead. <laughs> so I don't think it's all that shocking that after parts of three days he rose from the dead. I think it's a little shocking that it took him parts of three days to come back from the dead. So uh, I am persuaded that um, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And by the way, every generation has a book out written by somebody who set out to disprove the resurrection. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to undermine the Christian faith, like if you, if you want to bring it down, Paul says this is how you do it. Just figure out how to destroy the, the resurrection. Because if Christ did not rise from the dead, like if that's not true, then everything's off. Right? Of all, he says, if, if Christ didn't rise, then the whole thing's a joke, and those who believe that it rise are most to be pitied. And, and so people take Paul's advice and they go after the resurrection specifically and they go after Jesus in particular. And there's just a series of books, dozens of them, written by these people. Frank Morrison wrote one in the 60s, Josh McDowell, Evidence of Man's Verdict back in the 70s. More recently, Lee Strobel, uh, who is a Chicago Tribune investigative reporter, a Yale Law degree, uh, an atheist, his wife's an atheist, and then his wife becomes a, a Christ follower. And this really ticks him off. He doesn't want to be married to a Christian. And, uh, and so he sets out to use his Yale legal skills to undermine the Christian faith. And in the process, becomes persuaded that, oh my goodness, he did rise from the dead. And it completely changes his life. And he writes a book called The Case for Christ. And he's written other books. And we have him, as we mentioned, we have him coming here this, uh, this summer, July 20th and 21st to speak um, the case for miracles. And so, uh, look, there's all these books out there. And if you're unsettled about this, then I would commend one of those books to you. Because here's, here's the deal. <clears throat> so I'm in my 20th year as the pastor at Christ Church. And so I've given, I, I think, 17 Easter talks. And, uh, and every year, until this year, I've given effectively the same talk. And that is, uh, I, have, I have said, look, I know that uh, some of you are here against your will because you advertise it. And uh, you sort of strike the pose of a sullen middle schooler, whether you're 45 or not. And so I, I know, okay, you don't want to be here and I also know that some of you were here last year and you heard the same talk. As a matter of fact, you've heard me give 17 of these because every year you, your mom makes you come or, or, or a, sp a spouse or somehow you end up coming to uh, this service. But you've not heard me speak about anything else. For all you know, I can't speak about any other topic except the resurrection because you've heard this talk over and over and over again. And uh, so I'm going to say... <clears throat> This year, 
I'm not going to pick on you anymore. Like, I, I desperately want you to know that God loves you. And I want you to know that Jesus Christ is God and that he died in your place and that your life can be changed if you reach out to him. And I want you to know there is great reason to believe this. And I want you to know that, that it is a safe place to show up here at Christ Church. By the way, we meet every week, if you didn't know. And, uh, and I'm excited about the series that's going to start next week and all the musicians are doing and everything else. And so I'm excited about that. I, wanna, I want you to know that you can come back. It's a safe place for you to express your doubts. It's a safe place for you to process. We have groups for people who want to just process and think out loud and ask their questions. And I, I want you to know about this article that I've written that you can download. And I want you to know about Lee Strobel coming. There's a lot of things I want you to know, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you alone. And I am going to talk to those of you who believe that Christ rose from the dead, and you believed it when you showed up today. And I want to, I want to talk about the difference the resurrection makes. Like, why is this significant? And I have um, four points to make. So let me set this up by noting what we're, we're talking about specifically when we talk about the resurrection. The resurrection is not the suggestion that when somebody dies, they're going to live on in our hearts and in our memories. I, I hear that often, you know, uh, so-and-so died, but we think about them, that he's with us or she's with us every time a baby laughs or every beautiful sunset or, you know, uh, I, I, every butterfly I see, I think of them and they're here. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. Furthermore, uh, we're, we're, not, we're talking about a resurrection, not a resuscitation. So we're not suggesting that Jesus, who died on the cross, somehow came back to life hours later. I mean, there, there is, that happens. It happens more with our modern medical technology, that people who are dead have their heart restarted and they are resuscitated. And Jesus will raise some people. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He raised a girl from the dead. And so we, we, we see that there were, there were resuscitations because our understanding is that Lazarus was going to die again. So, so we're not claiming that the resurrection is a resuscitation. Additionally, we're not claiming that this is a spiritual resurrection. So the idea is that when we die, our body goes into the ground and our spirit lives on in the presence of God. And uh, almost everybody that has some sort of religious view has some idea of life after death, spiritually. That's not what we're talking about. The claim of the resurrection, just to be clear, is that, is that Jesus dies on the cross and his body is put in a tomb. And after parts of three days, right, that same body comes back to life. And it's, it's in many cases the same body, but it has been changed. And it is now imperishable. It's immortal. He's the same person, it's the same body, but it's now a, once it's a perfect body. And, and furthermore, the claim of the resurrection is that after 40 days on earth, so crucifixion, resurrection, 40 days on earth in which he hung, hangs out with the disciples. He's explaining who he is. He's trying to explain how all the pieces fit together, uh, how he fulfills all these prophecies. He's helping them understand the Old Testament in light of who he is. After he connects all the dots, then Jesus 
ascends into heaven with his body, his physical body. So one of the things people don't understand is that heaven is more real than earth. Like heaven is eternal and it's physical. It's not this whimsical, wispy, ethereal, you know, vaporous kind of existence. It's a real place. Jesus has a physical body and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And the third idea that comes out of this resurrection is that we will, in Christ, we will get those bodies also. We will get bodies that are the same but are immortal. So that's what we're talking about with the resurrection. And there's four reasons why this is important. First of all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is important because it confirms that Jesus is who he claims to be. I mean, that's just an important point for us to start with. Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. He claimed to be the, the coming judge of everyone. He claimed to be the king of kings. And he said he was going to die and rise again. And so it's significant to note that the resurrection is sort of a big exclamation point on that claims. So when you go through the Gospels, you see that, that it develops this idea. Jesus is constantly sort of revealing more and more about who he is. And so he, he claims to be uh, the Messiah. He claims to be the fulfillment of prophecy. And then he demonstrates his power over sickness. He demonstrates his power over evil. He demonstrates his power over nature. He demonstrates his power over death. And then, then we get to the resurrection and this is sort of the big final proof. I am actually who I claim to be. He comes back from the dead. Who can come back from the dead? Right? And for the record, no other religious leader of any substance ever claims, as Jesus does, to be God. What they claim is to have a path to God. But that's not what Jesus claims. Jesus doesn't say, the most important thing about me is what I teach. He says, the most important thing about me is who I am. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the path. So the first thing to note about the resurrection is that it sort of confirms that Jesus is who he claimed to be, and we have reason to trust everything else he claimed. A second reason that the resurrection is important is because it, it teaches us a little bit more about what it means to be a human. So, as I've been reading, as you may know, today, right now, there are people, most of them in California in the Silicon Valley region, but outside of that as well, who believe that in the not-too-terribly-distant future, we will be able to download our soul onto a machine and live forever. Like, we'll be able to somehow digitize our memories and our personality, and, and we, will, we will become one with the machine, and we will gain eternal life. So, set aside the technical challenges on this, which to me seem to be insurmountable, but I don't know how my iPhone works. So, it, possibly there, there are people who are closer to this than I would suspect. Let's imagine that that could happen. I just want you to know that is nothing like God's intention of what it means to be human. We are embodied spirits. So, so the body is sort of a non-negotiable part of what it means to be a person. 
One of the early challenges against the Christian faith is something called Gnosticism. And the Gnostics were those that said, it's all about our head, it's all about our ideas, it's all about what we know. And they believed that matter was, was bad and evil. And uh, this sort of comes out of Greek philosophy. And, and so there's this whole push early on to say that Jesus was not actually fully man. So it's a sort of opposite of today where people say, oh, I believe Jesus was a man, I just don't believe he was God. And, and they said, no, we believe that he was God, we don't believe that he was man. And of course the claim is that Jesus is both God and man, that he existed before time as God, that at the incarnation, Christmas, he becomes man, while remaining fully God, he becomes fully man, and, and that's what he continues to be throughout. And that's, the, that's sort of the hypostatic union, that's the dual nature of Christ. And so there are some, though, back in the early church, it was the first challenge against the Christian faith. They said, no, 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 Jesus was never really a man. He just looked like a man. He was sort of a ghost, but he wasn't a real person. And so we have in the New Testament letters people writing against this. So John, who writes the Gospel of John, writes a letter, writes several letters, but in the first letter that he writes, he opens it saying, I am writing to you about Jesus, who I saw with my own eyes, heard with my own ears, and touched with my hands. <laughs> He's real. And, and, and so Jesus goes out of his way when we go back to the Gospels that, that his, to, to prove that his physical resurrected body was real. He eats fish. They touch him, right? He's, he's got a real physical body. So uh, to be human is to have a body. Matter matters. God says the physical world is good. And the, and the hope that we have as Christ followers is not for some spiritual never-never land. It's for, it's for the world God made being perfected and for us to be perfected. And so we, we get some ideas from the resurrection that, that these bodies matter. A third thing that we get from the resurrection is an understanding that death has been defeated. So we're just coming through Holy Week. Good Friday is the day that we focus on the death of Christ. Most people around the world don't call it Good Friday. They call it Holy Friday or Friday of the Lament. Americans are always putting a positive spin on things, so it's Good Friday. And it's Good Friday here in part because it is a good day for us. Because what we celebrate, what we proclaim, it's a very, it's a very anti-religious claim, by the way. The Apostle Paul and Jesus are far more against religion than, than uh, Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or Bill Maher or any of those guys. Uh, because religion says we've got to reach up to God. And the Christian faith says, no, 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 we cannot reach up to God. We're too broken for that. God reaches down to us. And he reaches down to us in spite of who we are, not, be, not because of who we are. It's not that he thinks we're great and wonderful and good and cute and lovable. He knows all the junk in our lives. But God is love, and he's the hero, and he reaches down and he rescues us. So Christ becomes a person. God, the second person of the Trinity, takes on human flesh. He comes down. He lives. He teaches. He loves. He models. And then he dies... In our place. It is a sacrificial, substitutionary death. God becomes one of us in this way that, so that he can, he can be perfectly loving and perfectly just and hold on to those things. He absorbs the penalty for our sin and he dies in our place. So on Good Friday we celebrate death. But what we, we celebrate on Easter is that 
he defeats death. So he, he dies in your place, in my place, but he defeats death and he comes back to life. And the promise that we're given in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is not just that he defeats death, because we, we still die. Right? We, we're living in a time where we still die. But the promise that we're given now is that there will be a, a return of Christ and, and that he will come and those that are, that, are, that are dead, so when we die, our spirit goes to be with God, our body goes into the ground, there will be a return of Christ. At that point, there is a resurrection and we get new bodies, we get resurrected bodies, and, and then we're going to get bodies that don't die because Christ will destroy death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21 or 26, if you're going to look it up, one of those two. But it says he defeats, he's defeated death, and death will be destroyed. There will be no more death. And the fourth thing I've sort of hinted at already, the fourth reason that the resurrection is significant. So it's significant in that it confirms that Jesus is God. It's significant because it tells us something about what it means to be a human. It's significant because it lets us know that death has been defeated. The fourth reason that the resurrection is significant and important is because it, it, is, uh, it is a foreshadowing of what will happen for us. We, in Christ, will get new imperishable bodies. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 says that Jesus Christ is the firstborn of the dead. And he's called the firstborn of the dead because he's the, the first and to date the only one who has this new body. But we get new bodies. In the Middle Ages, there was a theologian that came out with this um, claim that after the resurrection, we'll all be 28. Based it on nothing, but I'm going with it because I would love to be 28. And so he claims that we're all 28 when we get these new bodies. Uh, what we are told about heaven and what we are told about these new bodies is written by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me read two passages here that reflect on this. The first is verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. And all of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is all about the resurrection. So in verse 42 he says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown and perishable, so our bodies, perishable. What is sown, what is put into the ground, perishable. What is raised, imperishable. What is um, sown, um, what is sown in dishonor because we are broken and sinful and we have bodies that are not perfect. What is sown in dishonor be raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. We get new bodies. Dropping down to verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal must put on immortality. So, uh, the challenge we get here, and it's a challenge that we get in, in numerous places in, um, in the Bible that look ahead to heaven, is that it just becomes sort of impossible for God to describe to us what it's going to be like. 
So if you've read the book of Revelation, you may know that at the very last chapters, it talks about uh, heaven. So John, so the same John that wrote the gospel, the same John I'm talking about in the letter, he writes the book of Revelation. He's called up into heaven. He gets this vision, and then he's sent back down, and he's supposed to uh, write about it. And he says things, sort of one of them that many people hear of, is that the streets are pure gold. Okay, so if you actually read it, what he says is the streets are pure gold, clear as glass. Now, I don't know whether you have any gold, but chances are it's not clear. Maybe you got it on the Internet and you can see through your gold, but uh, most people cannot see through gold. And what we have here is, is just simply an example of John being asked to describe something that, that he can't describe. Now, glass at the time that he's writing this was, was only basically ever in the courts of the kings. It was very rare. Most people didn't have windows. And so glass was this precious commodity. So he's taking, he's combining precious commodities. And he's saying the most pedestrian parts of life, right, the roads that you walk on made of rocks and dirt, there it's made of the most precious things imaginable. It's gold and clear glass. I don't think we can understand how all these pieces fit together. I love what C.S. Lewis says in the last um, battle, which is the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia series. And if you're only a moviegoer, they haven't even gotten close to making this movie. You're going to have to read the books. But uh, in, the, in, these, in this Chronicle series, Aslan, the Christ figure, is a lion. And so this is now at the very end, coming to the very end of all the adventures and everything. And, he, and it says, and as he spoke, Aslan, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful, I cannot write about them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we must truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their lives in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover page and title of the book. Now at last they were beginning. Chapter 1 of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That is the promise that we are given. Jesus rose from the dead and went ahead of us to prepare a place for us. The resurrection is the confirmation that we can trust the things that Jesus says. Well, there's more, but we'll stop there. And uh, I will say again, God loves you, and, and God has sent his son to die for you, and there's nobody like Jesus. Nobody lived like Jesus. Nobody taught like Jesus. Nobody loved like Jesus. He said he was going to die for you. He said he was going to rise again. And he did. And he did this in order to reconcile you to God. And the way forward is through Christ. So um, this is a great story. And we celebrate it. And I want to end uh, the same way we've, we started the service. And that is... He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love uh, on display in so many ways. Lord Jesus, we thank you for setting aside 
all the glory and privileges of heaven and the privileges of being God and coming and living among us and then dying in our place. And we celebrate your victory over death, that you broke the back of evil and that you have promised to destroy it. We celebrate that, Lord God. We look forward to uh, a new, resurrected, imperishable, perfect body. We thank you for your great love for us, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.